With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. What's good, boys and girls? Two for the podcast on Tuesday, the 14th of June, brought to you by EPLindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider. A virtual privacy network allows you to go online, change your location, access things you're geoblocked from, while also keeping your data safe. Go to libertyshield.com, use the code EPL25, that's EPL25, to get 25% off either the hardware or software packages. The hardware package is a router which is mailed out to you, shipping worldwide. The software is instantly downloadable to your devices. Get using straight away. LibertyShield.com, EPL25. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homeware company located in Scotland, but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk. And finally, do check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops, which you can find on Etsy. Use the codes EPL10 or RED10 to get 10% off at checkout. Right, folks. How are we all on this Tuesday? Very, very quiet on the transfer market. Obviously, Manchester City announced Erling Haaland. Liverpool fans are awaiting the announcement of Darwin Nunes, Arsenal seem to be sitting on their hands a little bit, as are Manchester United, who continue to seemingly waste time on players that don't actually want to join them. First, it was Darwin Nunes, and now it does appear that Frankie de Jong would much rather stay at Manchester at Barcelona than join United, but United are going off down that road anyway, and more power to them. They are being linked with Vitinha, young Portuguese midfielder from Porto. You might remember him having been in the Premier League before. He was in England with Wolves on a loan with an option to buy when Nuno was trying to move Wolves from the 3-4-3 he had been playing to a 4-2-3-1. He wanted Vitinha as a number 10 Somebody he could, he could rotate with Daniel Pedence, But it didn't work out because the centre-backs just couldn't make it work. And in the 3-4-3, there wasn't a role for him. Now, at Porto, he has dropped a little bit deeper, playing more in a midfield three. And he has been very, very good. He has kicked on quite substantially in his development. He's been linked to Liverpool. He's been linked to Spurs. He's been linked to a couple of clubs. He would be a good signing for United as long as they sign a defensive midfielder to go with him. 
And it's the same situation with Frankie de Jong. They need to sign a defensive midfielder to go with Frankie de Jong. If they can get him, which I still have major doubts, and it doesn't appear like he's all that keen, but if they could convince him that this was the move, they'd have to buy a defensive midfielder. Regardless of who that creative one is, whether it's Frankie, whether it's Fatinha, whether it's Ruben Neves, you've got to get a ball-winning athletic midfielder in there who can add some dynamism, who can shield your defence, who can give you some aggression, a bit of power in that midfield, because they've been soft in midfield for years and years and years. They're not the only team, though. One team who's notably been quite soft over the years is Spurs. People have always given Spurs the soft tag. Whether or not it's always been justified or not is up for debate. But last season, you'd have looked at Spurs and thought, not necessarily all that soft, but not not tough either. Like, I think Hoysberg's a pretty tough customer, but I don't see him as being the aggressive type. Uh, Bentoncourt has a bit of aggression about him, but he's more cultured. I wouldn't have said that Spurs necessarily needed to go and get a central midfielder in this summer. When I went through the list of squad needs for Spurs, I think the two centre-backs to go with Romero are a much bigger need for them. I would have said a right wing-back, obviously, a much bigger need for them. I did say a starting central midfielder would be good to get, and it was one of the seven things I marked down for them. And it looks like they're about to get it done, get that central midfielder in, because Yves Basuma of Brighton and Hove Albion, who would have been perfect for United, would have been perfect for Arsenal, would have fit really well at Liverpool, would have filled that Fernandinho void at City. It looks like Spurs are about to nab him for about £25 million, which is a bargain fee. Now, one of the reasons it's a bargain fee is... His contract situation. He's had a contract in 2023. The other is that there is a pending lawsuit hanging over him. He was arrested, if you remember, back in October for something he did in a nightclub. Now, there's been nothing further on that. The police investigation is ongoing. We don't know what the situation is. There's been nothing public about what the situation is. There's been some rumours about what he may or may not have done. Um, There's been some suggestions that he might well get off, that the case could well be dismissed. You'd expect that Spurs have done their due diligence, but I would have also thought that other clubs would have and that there would have been more of a battle to get him. I was genuinely expecting his price to be somewhere in the region of £40 this year. Even with a year left, at his age, with his profile and the experience he has in the Premier League, I mean, this guy is 25, he'll be 26 at the end of August. He's been at Brighton now four years, so he has all that Premier League experience. He's established himself as one of the best midfield players in the country. There is one other red flag for him. He has been banned from driving in the UK on two different occasions uh, due to repeated speeding offences. So that's a little bit of a red flag as well, something that you'd need to get him on, you know, in line with. 
But there's no doubting his ability on the pitch. He is an outstanding ball winner. He's a really good ball carrier, covers a ton of ground, wins the ball back high up the field, Is can be really aggressive in his defensive work, but can also be that one that just sits in front of the defence and knocks the ball around. So you get both sides with him. Now, I think Basuma and Bentoncourt is a really good stylistic fit as a two in a Conte midfield. And I said this on Twitter today, if you look at what Spurs have done in recent years with Basuma, Bentoncourt, Heusberg, Oli Skip from the academy, and Pape Matar Sar, all of them have come to the club. Skip obviously was in the academy, but all of them have been to the first team squad in the last two years for a combined 70, 75 million. For such a strong five-man midfield group, that's impressive business from Spurs. And when you factor in, they will sell Harry Winks, and you'd imagine they'll probably get some in the region of 15 million from Winks as an English international who's proven he can play in the Premier League will have decent value. Still only 26. He's not a spectacular player. I don't think he's quite good enough to start for any of the bigger clubs in the league. But if you're West Ham and below, I think he's a sensible player for anyone. Now, my expectation is he might end up at Everton who could really do with a player like him. He's like, think of the Burnley midfield with Cork and Westwood, neat and tidy, don't do anything spectacular, but rarely make mistakes, won't win you a game by themselves, but certainly won't lose you a game. He's basically the top tier version of that player. So Winks will have Premier League interest without doubt. And I think they'll probably get 15. They might even squeeze a little bit more out of a certain club. Endembele will be sold. Now, they're going to take a massive hit on the price they paid for him. They did pay big money to bring him in from Lyon. It obviously didn't work. Didn't work with Mourinho. Conte never really gave it an opportunity. Nuno didn't want anything to do with it. Um, so he'll be moved on. There will be interest in him. 25 turns 26 later this year. It might be a thing where you do a loan with an obligation to buy and hope that he can be a success or a loan even with an option to buy and hope that he can be a success and push his value up. They paid 55.5 million. There were to be 9 million in add-ons. I don't imagine any of them have been hit. I would guess Spurs could probably find in the region of 20 to 25 million for him. Given his talent, you have to sort of, if you're buying him, you've really got to fall in love with him at Lyon the first time around. And you've got to be willing to ignore what we've seen the last couple of years. There's so much talent there and there were flashes for Spurs, but just never consistently enough. If they can get 25 million for him, 15 for Winks, and it looks like they're going to get about 20 million for Giovanni Lo Celso from Villarreal, 
where he was on loan last season, that goes an awful long way towards paying for that new midfield. That could be 60 million of cash in against the 70 to 75 million pound outlay that they have. And that would be very impressive to completely turn around your midfield at a cost of only 10 million from something that wasn't working to something that I believe will work really well. Now, there are some suggestions that Spurs are also going to add Christian Eriksen. I stated before my preference was for him to stay at Brentford, but it doesn't look like that's going to happen. It looks like he is looking to play for a Champions League club. And Spurs is the one that makes the most sense. He's been there before. He knows the club. He's close friends with Kane and with Son. He's a good relationship with Daniel Levy. You add to that that he has worked under Antonio Conte before and won a league title at Inter Milan with, with the Italian manager. So Spurs makes a lot of sense for Christian Eriksen. Now, David Ornstein has said today that Manchester United are understood to have made an offer to Eriksen. They're among the club's interest in signing him. Eriksen's a bit of a strange fit at United, considering Bruno Fernandes. It'd be very difficult to get them both in the team unless you were going to play Eriksen off the left and then move Sancho to the right. I don't really see otherwise how you're getting him in the team, but it could well just be that they're going to rotate him, um, have Bruno with Ericsson as the rotation option. Bruno could play maybe as a false nine in some games, not ideal. Ericsson also can play off the left. So he could fit at United, but he's possibly a better fit at Spurs. Now, Spurs don't need him. Christian Eriksen would be a bit of a luxury signing for Spurs, but from a tactical point of view, it could be very important. Consider Spurs playing the 3-4-3, and the front three is Kulosevsky, Kane, and Son. Now, one thing we know is that Conte likes to rotate between the 3-4-3, which is what he's primarily used at Spurs, what he primarily used at Chelsea, and the 3-5-2, that he primarily used at Inter. And part of that five-man midfield was often Christian Eriksen. So there could be games where he prefers to leave Kulosevsky out and get more control in midfield by playing a player like Christian Eriksen. I think Spurs makes more sense for Eriksen because, well, number one, they're in the Champions League. Number two, he knows the club. Number three, they're just a much better team than this current United team. Ornstein has also said that Spurs are strongly interested in Jed Spence and that negotiations are ongoing between Tottenham and Middlesbrough. Spence has expressed a preference to sign for Spurs. So that could be one that gets done quite soon. I really like him. I think Jed Spence is a really good fit and he fills a position of need for them as well. Um, that was one of the positions I'd marked down for that starting right wing back, two starting centre backs, starting central midfielder, backup striker, and the backup goalkeeper, obviously, which they got in Fraser Forster. Um, they did bring in Perisic as well, so actually, they'll have eight moves if they do everything because I've got them down to find a long term goalkeeper, which I do think they'll try as well. 
it's interesting that United are trying to sign Christian Eriksen. Like, he's a very different player to Frankie De Jong, occupies very different spaces. So I can't see that he'd be an alternative to him. I really don't think you could play Christian Eriksen in the midfield too in the Premier League and expect to have any success. As good as he is, if he's playing in a midfield, it's got to be in a three or he's got to be a 10 in front of two midfielders. Or like I say, he can play from the left. Interesting. One to watch. One to watch for sure. Um, Adam Crafton is reporting that Spurs and Arsenal both hold genuine interest in Rafinha in what may be one of the biggest tussles this summer. Chelsea also have interest, but they are also pursuing Usman Dembele, while Spurs are considering Richarlison. See, Usman Dembele or Rafinha, that's a discussion to have because they play the same position. They're both left-footed right-wingers. Richarlison wouldn't be an alternative to Rafinha. Rafinha doesn't really make any sense for Spurs because his primary position would be the same position as Dejan Kulisewski. Now, he's an upgrade on Kulisewski, but then what do you do with this immensely talented young player that you've brought to your club and that you've got an obligation to buy? You don't spend Rafinha-type money, which will be somewhere in the £50 million range, on a squad player. So he's coming to start wherever he goes. Now, that's an even bigger issue at Arsenal. Where would he play? Unless they plan to play him left wing, because you're not moving Bikayo Saka off the right, surely. You've got Saka, you've got Martinelli, you've got Odegaard, you've got Smith Rowe. Obviously, they have Nicolas Pepe, who they'd like to move on, but you don't sell Pepe at what will be a loss and then sign Rafinha. That's just not what a smart club would do, especially when you've got so many other needs as Arsenal do. Now, could they be looking to make Martinelli their nine? Maybe, but that's an enormous gamble. An absolutely enormous gamble. Guy is suggesting that maybe Bukayo Saka plays in the midfield three. It's possible. So you go Odegaard, Partey and Saka as a three. That's definitely possible. But you're still going to need to buy a striker. And it would be cheaper to buy a midfielder like Yves Basuma, for example, and a striker than a winger and a striker. Crafton reports that Barcelona were Rafinha's top choice, but their financial troubles have pretty much scuppered that deal. Um, yeah, I mean, they were never going to be able to afford him, so it's not at all surprising. Uh, Rafinha is a wonderful player, and he does make sense for a number of clubs, but I just don't believe he makes sense for either Arsenal or Tottenham. Tottenham need a backup for Harry Kane. They don't need another starting calibre striker or starting calibre wide player, rather. That one 
makes less sense than Richarlison does. And it makes even less sense for Arsenal. Because here's the other thing. Where are you sending Nicolas Pepe? Who is it that's going to give you a decent amount of money for a player who has been so badly managed over the last couple of years and whose value has to be in the toilet? And Nicolas Pepe is still in his prime years. He's only 27. He should be at the very peak of his powers, but you've buried him on your bench. He played 20 times in the Premier League this past season, 23 in all competitions. Minutes-wise, he played 951 minutes in all competitions, 951. How is it that you would expect to get any sort of real money from that? He didn't start a game after October. He started against Chelsea, against against Brentford, against Chelsea, against Norwich, against Burnley, and then against Crystal Palace, and that was it. Didn't start another league game after that. Uh, did start three games in the League Cup, and that was it. That was it. Three, four, eight starts all season. 951 minutes. And bear in mind, in those starts, he pretty much played the entire game every time. In fact, he did play the entire game. In all eight starts, he played every minute. Eight by 90 is 720. So he played 231 minutes across his other 15 appearances. That's about 15 minutes in appearance. That is, that's not a player you're going to get good value for. You'd be better off trying to rehabilitate him and get his value back up so that you could sell him next summer than just buying in Rafinha. Because if you do that, then people will know you're desperate to get rid of him and you're going to get offered pennies. But Arsenal aren't a smart club, so you know it's no surprise. Tottenham's interest does really surprise me because what they've actually been doing has been quite smart. I mean, nobody had had a word on them going for Basuma until Gary Jacobs reported it today. And then Alistair Gold followed on and Eccles shares that his name from The Athletic and a couple of others. And then, of course, Romano tried to jump in with always agreed a five-year contract because he always says it's a five-year contract. Um, Even when it's a six-year contract, like with Darwin Nunes, he'll claim it's a five-year contract. But they did that one so quietly and it made sense. Jed Spence makes sense. Richarlison doesn't really make sense. Rafinha doesn't really make sense. I do wonder if maybe Spurs are putting a bit of false information out there to keep people distracted from what they're actually doing. It's very possible. Paratici's done that before. Other news today. Vincent Company has been appointed as the new manager of Burnley. He spent two years as manager of Anderlecht, 
if you remember when he went there first, he went there to be player manager and the whole thing was a big mess because he didn't have the right um, licenses or badges to coach in Belgium. So he had to step down and then step back up the following year. Um, He's done a relatively okay job. 45.6% win percentage. He took over Anderlecht at a bad time. Um, they've got a couple of superb, superbly talented young players, but they're not nearly the force that they were maybe five, six years before that. Um, you know, they won four titles in five years, the end of the last decade into this decade, then they won again in 17, and they've just been a bit of a shell of themselves. But like I said, there are some really talented players there. Yari Vasheran is, is superb. Marco Canna is one that I do like. Players to keep an eye on. There's always good talent coming through at clubs like that. But company has decided to make a change. Now, it's not a surprising change. He is married to a Mancunian. His kids are Mancunian. He probably just wanted to move back closer to his home. I mean, Manchester is Vincent Company's home. It has become his home over the past 15 years or however long we are since he joined City. Was it... Was it 2008 he signed for City? Yeah, 2008 he joined from Hamburg. So 14 years ago. And that's all he knew. He was a young lad when he arrived, 22 years of age. He grew up, became a man in Manchester, met his wife, had his kids, whatever else. Um, so it makes sense that he'd want to go back to the area. Now he's taking on a tough job. The financial situation at Burnley is, it's concerning. We had a leverage buyout, which we weren't meant to have. A club that had previously had cash in the bank and no debt at all. A club that was previously arguably the best run club in England all of a sudden had a couple of hundred million of debt leveraged onto it, a couple of big loans, and one of them is due a significant repayment this season, or this summer rather, because they've lost a place in the Premier League. They've lost Ben Mee, they've lost Tarkovsky, both on freeze, they're going to lose Nick Pope, they're going to probably lose Dwight McNeil, they will likely lose Max Cornet and Vud Veghorst, and they'll probably lose them all below market value because they're a championship club who are going to be desperate for money. So it's a very difficult time for a company to be walking into that job. I wouldn't envy them. I certainly don't think I'd take it. Not with how we've seen ownership act at that club, the restraints they've put on managers from a financial point of view. They didn't back Dice properly. And when they did, they left it all to the last minute. There doesn't seem to be a real football structure in place under these owners. And it's going to be a concern if you're a Burnley fan. And it's more of a concern if you're about to lose your best players and not have the finances to replace them. Another manager coming to England who played in England is Jean Dahl Thomason formerly of Newcastle United and probably more successfully of AC Milan, is taking over as Blackburn Rovers manager on a three-year contract, replacing Tony Mowbray. Uh, he's just won back-to-back league titles in Sweden with Malmo. Now, 
that may not be the best indicator of things because obviously Oli won titles with Malmo, but he's quite highly regarded. The style of play apparently is very eye-catching, very progressive manager, has really good ideas and speaks really well. He's very highly regarded. When he left Malmo, the expectation seemed to be that he'd go to the Bundesliga and that he'd get a job there this summer. But he's made the decision to take the Blackburn job. I think it's an ambitious move by Blackburn. I think it's an aggressive move by Blackburn. And it's not to say that Tony Mowbray didn't do a good job, because I do think he did. It probably was just a case where things had gone a bit stale. And that can often be the case, is that things just go a little bit stale. The good news for Blackburn, as Guy points out, is it's not Duncan Ferguson. So you can rejoice in that fact. Um, but look, when you, you know, a manager like Mowbray had been there nearly five and a half years, 267 games in charge. It's a lot, you know, it, it's a it's a big change now for the club. And um, it's a funny thing with Mowbray, because I do think he's a good manager. I think he wants to play really attacking football, like really good football. But things go stale on him and he doesn't seem to have any change of plan. Because the same thing at Middlesbrough. He was there three years or so, started well, football was good, and then it just all tailed off and wasn't very good. It was the same thing back when he was at West Brom and the football was good, but all of a sudden it just didn't go very well. And um, when he hits that wall, he just doesn't seem to have any way around it. It did not go well for him at Celtic. And I still hold that against him, but it is what it is. Uh, so John Bill Tom- Thomason in. I- I'm quite excited by this. I'm quite excited to see what he can bring to English football. I always liked him as a player. Um, so I will, be, I will be very, very interested to see how he does. He a really good career. People forget what a good career he was. If it wasn't for that spell at Newcastle, I think he'd be far more highly regarded as a player from when he was at Heronveen, Feyenoord, Milan. The Stuttgart thing didn't go well, but he was decent for Villarreal and he was good when he went back to Feyenoord. And he was really good for the Danish national team for well over a decade. So, yeah, very good player. And um, I'm curious to see how he does the manager with Blackburn. Hopefully, the Venkies will give him some money to spend. Um, right, we'll take a break. And when we come back, we will have a bit more news, I suppose, and then we'll do the gossip and we'll be done for today. Nice and quick. See you in a sec. Right, welcome back. So uh, one player leaving the Premier League is Nemanja Vidic. He has signed for AS Roma on a one-year deal, reuniting him with Jose Mourinho, who, of course, he played under at Chelsea and at United and won a Europa League, a League Cup, and, um, and a Premier League title under. He was clearly past his best in the Premier League, but his intelligence, his positional sense, he's a decent distributor of the football, should fit well in Syria should be a little bit easier on the legs. So all things considered, it's a pretty good signing for Roma. I mean, the alternative was that they signed Granit Xhaka. So anything is better than that. 
Uh, Bayern Munich have announced the signing of Ryan Gravenberch eventually. It only took them, you know, a month after the deal was done. I do think this could prove to be one of the great bargains in the next 10 years. They paid 16 million for him. This kid, when he was breaking through at Ajax, this was, you know, this was what Jude Bellingham was seen as. That kind of level. That's what Gravenberch was thought of as. He was the next Pogba. It was Gravenberch, it was Bellingham, it was Camavinga. Before Chuameni appeared on the scene, Gravenberch was the one that people thought was going to be the, you know, the, the great all-rounder. Now, I know he only had a year left on his contract, but still, Ajax have not done too well with this one. They did shop him around last season, but even then, I remember thinking the price was considerably low and was surprised that he ended up staying at Ajax for another year. I think that's a really good move for Bayern. I think it's a clever signing. Gives them some depth and some competition in midfield. It does look like Mark Roca is going to leave and potentially go to Leeds. This could be part of a bit of a merry-go-round because obviously there are strong rumours that Calvin Phillips could leave Leeds and go to Manchester City. So we'll keep an eye on that one and see how it develops. But Gravenberch to... Bayern is definitely one where I think other clubs will look at in a year and think, God, for 16 million, we, we could have gone and got him. Um, this is an interesting story. Peter Kenyon, former chief executive of Manchester United and Chelsea, is leading a consortium that are hoping to buy Everton Football Club. Now, this started with... Mashiri looking for investors in the stadium because obviously after the partnership with Usmanov dissolved because he was sanctioned, Mashiri can't afford to fund the stadium by himself. So he started looking for investors to come in on the stadium with him. That then seemingly developed into the potential that he might sell shares in Everton or a chunk of Everton. And now, if reports and rumours are to be believed, he might be open to selling the job lot and just moving on with his life. For Everton, that could be a good thing because while I'm sure he's a very intelligent businessman, he comes across as a bit of a clown and he has done a largely terrible job since buying Everton. You look at the appointments he's made, not just as managers, but up and down the structure, just, they haven't been good enough. He hasn't appointed a real board. It's still people that were there before him. Like Bill Kenwright's still on the board there. How is Bill Kenwright still allowed to be a decision maker at Everton? And I saw Everton fans moaning yesterday. One, one or two, not, not a bunch of them, but one or two Everton fans moaning yesterday about, oh, Liverpool are spending all this money on Nunes and oh, you know, we're stuck here trying to sign a free transfer. Well, look, first of all, James Tarkovsky immediately becomes your best defender. So, you know, settle yourselves down. He, he's a very good player. You're very fortunate that he's making the decision to join you when he has had, whether he's had better financial offers or not, I don't know, but he's been offered contracts by better clubs or better teams than Everton. So don't be so disrespectful to your new signing before he's even in the door. Number two, the reason you're not allowed to sign anybody at the minute is because you've been so poorly run that you've lost 
300 million or 370 million or whatever it was in the last three years. Now you're attempting to claim ridiculous amounts of that as COVID write-offs, even though the world knows you're telling lies, but you've still lost 200 million after those are taken off in three years. You recently released players in Cenk Tusen, Gilfie Sigurdsson and Fabian Delph, who cost 65, 70, 80 million pounds. It's not that long ago since you released Theo Walcott, who cost 20 million pounds. You spent money so poorly. And it's crazy. I was talking to a couple of rational Everton fans and we were talking about how since Moyes left, because we often look at United and we say, well, since Ferguson left, you know, they just haven't been the same. There's no, there's no strong figures there. There's no leadership within the club. Well, the same is true of Everton. Since Moyes left Everton to go to United and replace Ferguson, there's been no strong leadership within the club. There's been no intelligent football maker, football decision makers for more than a year or two. Marcel Brands was there, but he was massively marginalised, first by Ancelotti and then by Benitez. Ancelotti only stayed 18 months. Benitez only lasted seven. Who since Moyes would you look at and say, that's someone I trust to make big decisions at my football club? Nobody. Nobody. Even Carlo. Because Carlo at his very best, has always worked under a director of football. Rafa just walked into a really bad situation. Rafa has made decisions at big clubs before, and it's worked for him. But Rafa walked into a situation where he had like two million to spend, and he was having to scrap around for any old cast-offs he could find. So Solomon Rondon, Asmir Begovic, Andros Townsend. Two million on Damari Gray was a really good find, but that's basically what he was gifted because of the failures of previous management. And I've said before, with people like Duncan Ferguson, he's an architect of failure over and over and over again. Him and all the other people that were there for Carlo and Silva and Koeman and Martinez, all they did was oversee failure and create a failure, a systemic failure within the club, create a losing mentality within the club. Moyes didn't win the trophies, but Moyes' teams had a toughness to them. Moyes' teams went out, other than against the top four, and believed they could win. And Moyes' teams were often the best team outside of the big six. The league table might not always have reflected it, but Look at how tough they played everybody. Very similar to this West Ham team. What Moyes is doing at West Ham is very, very similar to what he did at Everton. And Everton just haven't had that. Like When Everton appointed Lampard, what they were screaming out for was David Moyes. And Everton are still screaming out for David Moyes because Frank Lampard's the worst manager in the league. And Moyes is, is a really good manager. Like He's not a great manager. He's not Klopp or Pep or... 
Conte or or that level, but he's he's a very very good manager, and he's a, he's he's a strong thinker, and he's someone who knows what he wants. He's got a very clear view of what he wants. No one at Everton has a clear view of what they want want the football club to be. It has felt since Brands took over as the director of football, it felt like the him and Silva thing could have been a plan that could be something that works until you realize that their interest in silver predated brands so was brands the one who made the decision to bring him in probably not i really don't think marcel brands picked carlo carlo was basically when you go star hunting you just try and get the biggest biggest name you can but Carlo wanted to do things his way and to get him to a club like Everton, Everton had to say to him, fine, you, you do things your way. Whatever players you want, we'll go and get. But as Marcel Brands was trying to build up a recruitment department and a culture in the recruitment, it, it then gets hijacked by decisions like signing Alan. And I love Alan. I think he's been a great player for years. But he didn't fit with the age profile of anything else they were doing. Everton's approach to everything has been so scattergun. And they've gone from this manager and that style of play to this manager and that style of play. And now we're going to do this, but now wait, that hasn't worked. So let's do something completely different. They've never committed to anything and stayed committed to it since Moyes left. And the issue of Everton's spending isn't just a post-Moyes thing, because... When Moyes was there, they had the exact opposite issue. They wouldn't spend. The penny pinching was incredible. Kenwright wouldn't give Moyes a penny to spend unless Moyes threatened to quit. He thought Moyes should be able to just work the scrap heaps and pick up all these bargains. And Moyes, to be fair to him, did it a couple of times, but couldn't be expected to do it over and over again. Not when the, the stated goal of the club was European football on the regular, get everything back to, you know, their heady top six, top seven days on the regular. You need money to do that in this league. So from the penny pinching of the Kenwright era under Moyes, then he was willing to splurge under Lukaku. Under Kuman, Mashiri comes in, they start spending money left, right and centre, there's cash everywhere. And all of it's been this complete cycle of failure. And Mishiri has to take the blame for it. So for, for Everton, if I was an Everton fan, I would want him gone. I would want Peter Kenyon, who I know knows how to run a football club. Peter Kenyon was the most influential person commercially, to Manchester United in the 90s. When United exploded and went from being, you know, one of the three biggest teams in England to one of the three biggest teams in the world, Peter Kenyon was the architect to all of that. It was Peter Kenyon that looked at David Beckham and Ryan Giggs and thought, your faces will sell, not just what you can do with a football. When people talk about, you know, it's amazing how big a star Beckham became, Peter Kenyon is the biggest reason for that. 
he put Beckham's face on everything. He sold Beckham the brand to Asia and brought in all that money. Ferguson is obviously the, the most responsible for all of United's great success and growth. But it's notable that when Peter Kenyon left, United's brand shuttered and slowed down quite a bit. As good as David Gill was, he wasn't Kenyon from a commercial point of view. He didn't have his commercial brain. And they've never been able to recover from Gill leaving. Kenyon obviously then went to Chelsea when Roman Abramovich took over and was very, very important in their early growth as well. So I don't know who else is involved in this uh, consortium, but Peter Kenyon is the type of person I would want involved in the running of my football club. If I was a club like Everton, wanting to break out of what's coming up to now a decade-long malaise of mediocrity, I think that is all the news for now. So we will finish up with the gossip and be done for today. Manchester City will push to sign Calvin Phillips. He is the preferred midfield target now that uh, Erling Haaland has been confirmed. Phillips is a very good player. At 26, it's not the right move for him because he's never going to be a starter there. Now, unless Pep has a decision, has decided that he wants to sit Rodri and another holding midfielder, play De Bruyne and then play wingers in Haaland, maybe he's going to do that. Maybe he wants more defensive solidity. So Phillips could start there. But if you're playing the midfield three or you're playing the normal makeup of a city midfield, whether it's a two and a one or a three, there's only one holding midfielder there. And Rodri... As good as Calvin Phillips is, Rodri is on a different level. So I don't know this is the best move for Calvin Phillips. Uh, Manchester United have opened talks with Barcelona. We've been hearing about this for ages now. I still don't think it's going to happen. Uh, Tottenham want to sign with Charleston. We've been over that. Liverpool and Manchester City are tracking Gavi, although his release clause has now risen to £85 million. Pounds. I, I I don't know if that's true. I have doubts. It's market. It's probably garbage. But um, I'd imagine both clubs are very interested in them for sure. Orby Leipzig have set a price of 100 million on Christopher Nkunku, and rightly so. Uh, he's not worth that type of money, but yeah, hold off for what you want. Um, Newcastle are prefer- prepared to move on to another target after Lille raised their asking price for, for Sven Botman from 30 million to 36 million. Lille seemed to be just playing games with Newcastle, and they did it in January as well. Uh, the Magpies are still confident of signing Hugo Ekatiki with a bid of 25.6 million on the table. Fulham are interested in a deal for Bernard Leno. There's two conflicting reports going around. One is Fulham are going to sign Thomas Strakosha. And the other is Fulham are going to sign Bernard Leno. Um, I, I think I would rather Strakosha personally, but Leno's a decent shot stopper, just can't do anything else. Manchester City are close to signing 19-year-old French centre-back Isaac Touré from La Havre. If you haven't seen Isaac Touré, just YouTube it. 
Isaac with a K, Toure. He's a six foot nine central defender. Uh, Brighton are targeting Porto and Nigeria left back Zedu Sanusi in a move that could pave the way for Mark Cucurella to join Manchester City. I, I wouldn't be a huge fan of him, to be completely honest. I, I saw him in the Champions League and I wouldn't be a fan. I wouldn't be a fan. Middlesbrough have made loan inquiries for Tom Heaton and Hamza Chowdhury. Hamza Chowdhury would be a decent signing for them on loan. I don't think United will let Tom Heaton go because he's only really there for the quota. Aston Villa have no intention of signing or selling Danny Ings, despite the Englishman being linked to Leeds and Manchester United. Uh, United signing Danny Ings would be peak banter era. Uh, Leeds are close to a deal for Mark Rocha. Fulham are leading Nottingham Forest in the race to sign Nico Williams. There does seem to be a bit of a battle, a couple of teams interested in him. So it'll be interesting to see where he ends up. Wool, sorry, Rangers have lined up Sunderland and Scotland striker Ross Stewart as their preferred replacement for Alfredo Morellas if the 25-year-old rejects a new deal at Ibrox. Um, Morales to Ross Stewart is, is a substantial downgrade. Preston North Ender advanced talks to sign Andre Gray with the 30-year-old Jamaican international available on a free transfer. That is one of the more disastrous of many disastrous signings made by Watford Football Club in the past decade. They paid around 20 million to buy him from Burnley and it has been a mess. Uh, 21 goals in 136, 126 appearances spent last season on loan. Did well for QPR to be fair, but it did not go well at all. Was bought to play alongside Troy Deeney. Should have been a replacement for Troy Deeney. Swansea, Middlesbrough, Preston and QPR are all interested in taking Troy Parrott on loan. I, I do like Troy Parrott. I'm biased, obviously. Coventry have rejected an inquiry from Middlesbrough for Swedish striker Victor Bjorkas, uh, while Fulham are also keen. Very talented. Don't know if he's Premier League ready, but uh, certainly looked a standout player in the Championship last year. And that is me for today, folks. I will see you all tomorrow. Take care of yourselves. Bye-bye. Podcast Network.